Hi, this is Charlie Gordon. Welcome to episode one of Charlie's Room. I hope you had a chance to listen to my five-minute episode zero, the trailer of this podcast. I try to explain that I started recording interviews before and at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, that I let it lapse because I had too much going on. It was difficult to restart the process, but I had a great desire to do so. Before I get started, I want to give a disclaimer. Though I work for Lamoille South Supervisory Union and Stowe Middle and High School, this podcast has no affiliation with the school district and the schools. The opinions expressed may not be shared by Lamoille South Supervisory Union or Stowe Middle and High School and the administration of both entities. That said, if you listen to my trailer, you know that I have no intent here to harm anyone, merely to edify. Anyway, there are three older interviews previously recorded. This is the first of Seth Marino, French teacher at Stowe High School, and at the time of the interview, also teaching at Stowe Middle School. I have to admit, I didn't know what I was doing with sound production. I actually improved on this, but now I'm having to relearn the process a couple of years later. I use Adobe Audition, which is a fantastic program, but running a nuclear reactor would probably be half as complicated. There are hundreds of controls, inputs, gizmos, and what's it. So bear with me, the sound is not that good on these early podcasts. I hope the interview will be interesting enough to carry the day here. Seth is a great colleague, really a top-notch French instructor and all-around good guy. Seth also has had a long career in education, including some work as a school principal. Since the interview, Seth left our school system and spent some time working on his family business, his parents' and uncles' business, that is. They are painting contractors working from Montpelier. The school system realized how valuable Seth is to our schools and coaxed him back. Seth's integrity and high standards are apparent just from the fact that the school district wanted him teaching here again. And it's been great to have him back. I hope you enjoy my interview of Seth Marino, our French teacher at Stowe High School. All right, I'm here interviewing Seth Marino, teacher in Stowe High School and Stowe Middle School. Seth, uh, tell us about your position in the in the high school and middle school. So I am the one and only French teacher here at Stowe Middle High School. I currently teach uh, seventh and eighth grade French, and I also have French two, three, four, five in the high school. That's a lot of years. You have you language teachers have the students for year after year. Yeah, it's we're it's one of different. The, yeah, we're one of the few. Uh, few teachers in the building where you really can start in middle school with kids and and sensibly stay with them right up through their their senior year so you do see some interesting growth over time with with all of them yeah it must be quite a relationship you build with those people with those kids yeah in addition to just seeing them regularly year after year we also have some of our the travel the travel options that we have you know like in the eighth grade trip and then there's a variety of things we do in the small to large trips in the in the high school and so you get to know kids outside of just the classroom too so i think that also aids in the relationship building well i felt really fortunate to be on the trip with you for a couple of years yeah. the eighth grade trip and i hope that that happens again if i get back to eighth grade if i if that's what the way it works out but it's just uh you know, it's a you have a very good way of uh, just introducing them to the language at that age and and showing them Montreal and in the, the culture and everything and it's it's a ball uh, going up there with you guys. 
I, I enjoy going with you as well. You have a lot of you have a lot of like street knowledge of, and, uh, of like where to go and what to do in Montreal. It's so fun. The bagel place and going around our little walks. Yeah, uh, yeah. I and I think it's a really good thing for for the kids. They look forward to it. Sometimes you might think like, oh, just going to Montreal for an overnight is not that big a deal. But um, for many of these kids, it's it's a pretty good experience, and they. They talk about it years later. Do you remember when we were yeah. up on the bus? Remember when we did this? And so I, that is part of like the language learning experience, right? Like having some of these field trips where you go out into the culture, even as, as short as an overnight to Montreal, can be really impactful for students. So what happens? What's the impact on that when, when we have the COVID era here and um and it doesn't happen. And also, what's the how is it? How have you been coping with the whole pandemic and everything that that we've had? It's been really challenging. Like the the non travel really is is challenging because it that's such a big carrot for for students and yeah, and a lot of what turns them on to trying the language or once they've traveled a little bit, it helps them even more. And, and the the substitutes that they're offering right now, there's cool. Um, digital virtual tours that are really pretty exciting about lots of places in France and in Quebec and museums and stuff. There's a lot of cool cultural stuff like that and that's that'll be nice to do, but of course it doesn't it doesn't replace the the variety of things that we've done with students in the past of actually traveling on site. So that that for me is right now an unknown, but uh, that as long as we're not able to travel even up to travel up to Quebec, it's it's definitely um, I think it will sort of reduce some of the excitement and some, yeah. of, the, some of the pizzazz that kind of goes with, with, te- with taking a lot. Well, you really get to put it, you know, to see it in action and open up your mind if you're a kid, I think, in, yeah. in that situation. But um, the other thing, too, though, with that is like with this COVID, is we can't have our classroom celebrations. You know, we yeah. look in the, the upper levels, we have these, uh, we have these often a few times a month or a couple times a month, we have these. What we would call the complex assessment which are like Friday coffee talks where kids would sometimes they would bake, bring baked goods in and we would have coffee and tea and hot chocolate and we'd sit around and oh, it's fantastic conversations and student student generated questions and we would just kind of enjoy coffee and sit around and do that we can still have the conversations but there's something about doing that and sitting around with the coffee and the croissant that the kids love and we we would do usually quarterly crepe parties or, or some sort of French restaurant. There's always some aspect of French food involved with, with each of the each of the levels, each of the years. And so with that not being currently possible, it just takes another like you add that to the to the not traveling, it right. just kind of takes another way. It takes away from some of the cool things we have. Well, I've always envied uh, language teachers because, you know, if I teach math, I have to teach math. But yeah. you could pick any subject under the sun and teach it as part of the culture of the language in the language that you teach. It's really been, it's <laughs> kind of exciting actually now like with, the, with the French four and fives particularly where you get to this place where they have enough language and we still, we still continue with some grammar and writing and we do travel scenarios and stuff. But, but we get to the point where you begin to use the French to access literature, architecture, um, history, mm. current events, you name it. You could do other, you could do science, you could do other things like that, but 
all of a sudden we're doing, we're using French to talk about impressionist art, or we're we're using French to go um, to get into. Uh, we've been reading Quebec folk tales and talking about um, the influence of the church, the Catholic Church in Quebec, and mm. the sense of place uh, and the the nature uh, that is really that's really relevant or prevalent in um, Quebec folk tales. So we're using French to get to some of those cool big key ideas. Right. So why did why what's what's so special about French in the first place? It's um for me it's really for me it is the richness of the culture and, and the diversity of the culture that we have. Um, you know, I I was drawn to it initially by like not the French Canadian culture because even though it was my heritage was not really was not really as vibrant in my school or in my school my school or my um, growing up in Montpelier but beginning to look into French architecture castles the medieval French medieval French um, like even the tapestries and the some of the cool art that I saw through my teachers and got to go to France and we go to France we went to these castles and we went to these museums and got to see a lot of that that really took me off is like French being a very interesting culture like a long history and and that just mm. for me um, just expanded out into more architecture food and you just when you start to look into literature and poetry and film and you do that and then you can you can expand that from France and Quebec to Francophone Africa. There's just so many rich, diverse cultures and, and interesting things that French that the door of French opens you up to. I really I think that's why it's it's so huh. So how did you get in well you had a you, you alluded to the fact that you have a in your family, a culture. Yeah. Um, it's so <coughs> Marino is a, is a French last name, and my grandfather was one of twelve. He wasn't the last, but he was like somewhere in the middle of twelve children. Now, were they all uh, house painters? Yes, many of them were. I've <laughs> like seen the trucks in Montpelier. <laughs> yeah, my grandfather was uh, was like one of the first of his family to be born in Vermont, and. In Montpelier? Yeah, in Montpelier. Okay. Right down in Montpelier. The Heaton there. Hospital or something like that? He was born at home. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this yeah. was 1915, maybe. Okay. Born at home, just off... Um, just before the Spanish flu hit Montpelier. Yeah. 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 So you, know, uh, you know where the Granite Street Bridge is? Yeah. So if you go across Granite Street Bridge, you go up Berlin Street. Right. About four houses up. Right okay. There. Uh, and he grew up speaking French with his mother and father. His father died when he was really young, speaking French in the house with his brother and sisters, who all the older ones had been born in Quebec. And his mother died young, and there was a lot of pushback to um, a lot of the sort of prejudice against French Canadians at the time. And really? so they were really um, sort of forced by their, by their mother to not speak French outside of the house, to assimilate, to become Americanized yeah. and, and to not really use their language or heritage. And so other than speaking French with his mother and with some of his, um, with his brothers and sisters, the, um, 
there wasn't there wasn't really any more connection, and they didn't have a really much of a francophone community in Montpelier at the time. So, unlike Barry, right? Um, but so the French left the the family in that sense. So my father never learned any French. He maybe heard his grandmother speaking to someone when he was a kid, but he never spoke any French. And so when I got to middle school in Montpelier. I started taking French just like our middle school kids here. I didn't really have any background or anything. Was that the middle school that you eventually taught at? Yeah, I actually Which taught. is the former high school, but ended up being the middle school. Yeah, it's yeah. the middle school. It was the middle school when I went there. And I didn't teach. I taught there for a year. I didn't teach in the same room that I took French in, but it wasn't far away. Okay. <laughs> and it was... Uh, I had... Uh, she seemed like she was ancient at the time. <laughs> And she like she was probably our age, right? I, I was like, I finally like, like who was five it? Five or six years. It was Micheline Lyons. Okay. And I think when she died, sometime in the later nineties, she was like ninety-two. So she, I think when she was teaching me, she was pretty. I think she was okay. like in her seventies. But she she was a Holocaust survivor. Oh. And she actually had the tattoo on her arm and she's a really interesting lady and we were learning French from her really well and she gave me, you may have seen the French flag in my, my room. Yeah, I've seen it. it. That French flag is from her. Oh. She gave that to me on her last day. Ever? Ever. ever. Which was about what, what, roughly what year was that? 1990? Okay, go on. Yeah. Yeah. She said, oh, this is a flag from, from my family. And this flag, we went to the concentration camps. I lost my family. And this flag was hidden in a cupboard in our house in France. And when we, I was, she was a little child, but at some point she, she was saved and got back to that house and had that French flag, which was wow. hidden somewhere. And she gave that and to you me. you carry that today. Yeah. She said, I think we're going to do something with French someday. So I'm going to have this. <laughs> Little did she know. Little did she know. And so here I am, a French teacher. And there it is up on the up on the wall in my classroom. What was the secret to her teaching? What was she? What was she, what was she it's really interesting. She inspired you, apparently. She did. And then I, my, my Montpelier High School teacher, Ed Ski, yeah. um, was also really inspired to me. Like, they... They were not like, they were like old school, man. They were like, it was a lot of grammar, a lot of translation, yeah. a lot of vocabulary, a lot of drilling into your head. And I can still, in my head, like see activities that we did. Like I can see the papers in my head. I can see. And it was yeah. not a lot of, not at all how we like, we're still not at all really reflective of what you would think are really good methods nowadays. But yeah. somehow it's stuck. And indeed, there's... There's at least 12 to 12 people that graduated from my year from Montpelier High School that currently speak French as adults. And, and I know people from other class years that also speak French. So whatever they were doing was effective because yeah. they produced a lot of French people. Could it just be they had a special class or do you think that the kids were different? More, uh, what do you think? Like, it's really hard. Like, hard to me. Like A lot of people would, would a lot of their methods would not would not rate today as being the progressive new way to do it. Yeah. 
But when you look at the results, <laughs> it's stuck. Like I'm not saying that everyone was speaking French and doing super well while they were in class, but what they did got people interested and they held on to it enough so that when they went off to French speaking places or college or whatever, that it worked. It stuck. They somehow, That's interesting. They somehow had it yeah. and were able to use it. And but maybe, yeah. It's it's a really for me it's a bizarre thing because today there's a lot about like comprehensible input and just getting kids to talk and just sort of absorbing it. And I really I'm really not convinced that while it might get kids talking and, and sounding like it's good in the classroom, I I'm not convinced that it actually sticks. Yeah. I think that you need structures in your head to stick to. And and that teachers that I had in Montpellier, that worked for them. And right. it didn't just work for me, it worked for a number of other students to, to make you pause and wonder. Right. Yeah. Well, I think also uh, learning a language has an effect on your English, uh, your knowledge of English as well, if you're an English speaker. You know, don't, don't you think? I mean, I don't think people really know grammar until they study a foreign language, you know? Studying a foreign language and you start going to teach a foreign language and then you really begin to realize Oh, we might have the same words like wood, W-O-U-L-D. Yeah. And wood, like all of a sudden is like, oh, no, that's how we make something. We put that and say, oh, like when I was a kid, I would go to my grandmother's for Christmas. Well, that is implying habit, habitual action. Okay. Right? I would go. You understand when I say that to you, you'd say, oh, well, you know those grandmothers regularly when he was a kid. But if I say wood, boy... I would really like to go out to dinner tonight. That's a conditional, right? Yeah. And when kids without learning a foreign language don't necessarily understand that that same word is doing two very different jobs. Right. You know, it's implying habit yeah. in the past or it's implying condition. If you just have that perspective of a native speaker, you never really examine what, yeah. what the yeah. language is, you know. And then and then and then let alone like just talking about things like pronouns and and parts of parts of speech or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is helpful. So you have actually, uh, you know, you, you spoke about how your your family uh, historically, you know, they they were uh, ha- kind of pressured to yeah. uh, assimilate into society. Yet in your household, you have like the opposite thing going on. You have <laughs> apparently, yeah. from what I've heard, you have the, the whole family speaking French within the house. It's true. So, so I have, first I have to ask you, is that a tough sell for your wife? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> you went along with it easily? I should tell you the story because <laughs> okay. it's, actually, it's actually her story more that makes this happen than mine. Because uh, is, she, is she of French? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so whereas I grew up in Montpelier, yeah, and there wasn't really much of a francophone community. There was all the French names, but that yeah. that like core French community wasn't as strong. And Mary, however, you know, Mary had a very strong French Canadian. Hundreds of families. We're not hundreds of families that still spoke French. Right. Spoke French all the way through. They had social clubs. Mm. A lot of religious organizations. There was a lot. There's a network. They still do, don't they? They still do. It's dwindling. I've heard you go to some club down there for the fish fries or something. Oh, right? I do. That's the Italian. <laughs> oh, Italian. Club. Okay. But but they left French people because <laughs> there's not enough Italians left in Barrie to uh, okay to make it work. All right. But uh, the <laughs> the 
the French community in Barry, those folks came down and they connected to a network that was already there. Yeah. And so there's people that are getting married, speaking French, raising their kids in French all the way up through. So my wife. She was a Barry girl? She's a Barry girl. I didn't know that. So get this. So her parents moved down. They were in the last immigrant wave in the late 50s, early 60s, maybe the 1960s. Her father came down, like the, the classic, the classic like um, immigrant story from a hard scrabble farm in Quebec. Yeah, southern Quebec, probably. Yeah, southern Quebec, just yeah. um, just south of the south of the St. Lawrence. Yeah, um, and basically, we're like they couldn't farm there, or they couldn't farm there. Modernization was going on. wasn't much wasn't much for opportunity, and some of his it's like a chain migration thing. Many of his uh, well, his uncles and some of his cousins had moved to Barry and started working in the granite industry. And so my father-in-law came down, got a job working in the granite industry. And at the time, granite industry jobs were paying significantly more than than other um, other trades and other other jobs. Was he in the quarry? No, he ended up um he ended up being taught and or, or taught himself to to um, do sandblast carving. Okay. So lettering, roses, hands, mm. you know, all the all the different kinds of not full round sculptures, not sculpting, but but sandblast sculpting. Right. So he started he started doing that work. Have you seen some some of his work? Sitting around? Oh, it's all over. It is all over. Really? He did his own tombstone. Like oh boy. Like and his tombstone's there and ready to go, even though. They're not dead yet. He's still around, yeah, <laughs> above ground. But a lot of them did. I mean, you go over to the Barry, yeah. even in Montpelier, the cemeteries are unbelievable. They're gorgeous. They're yeah. absolutely gorgeous. And a lot of those are, are French stone carvers, and my my father-in-law is one of them. And so he got himself established, and he ended up kept going back up to Canada on the weekends. Met my my mother-in-law. They got married, and she moved down here, and they started their life in Barry. Had their son, who's ten years older than my wife, and then had my wife, and they just spoke French at home. My wife did not speak English until she went to kindergarten. Wow! Which you don't think about that today in Vermont. You know, I know in other, even in other immigrant communities and in larger places, kids usually speak before that. But it goes to show you that there was such a, a community in Barrie that she could play with other kids. And, do and stuff. still not, and still not really speaking. Not right. hit the English. <laughs> and wow, my mother-in-law. It's been sixty something years now since she's been here, but she still has a very strong ass. She's my father-in-law speaks English a lot better than her, right? Um, but but she, if things get going too fast in a conversation in English, or you want to talk about stuff that's a little bit more complex or or modern, mm. she she has a harder time. Keeping up with English. So, what part of Barry did they come from? They live up on uh, Trow Hill. Okay. Yeah. So on then, how did? They, so, tell me how that uh, ended up being in your household. So, um, so when my wife and I met, she was a French teacher. I was a French teacher, and <laughs> marriage made in heaven brought us together. Like, <laughs> okay. And she just she was really excited because um, she. Her parents and she thought it would be really great to continue the French heritage. So lo and behold, she meets a young man who also speaks French. Is this great 
A nice Montpelier boy. Yeah, so this is, this is going to work. Uh, so we spoke French together, but not all the time. Hmm. Uh, we'd go to her parents' house, we'd speak French together, and then we'd leave her parents' house, and we'd go home, we'd speak French, the next morning we'd wake up, we'd be speaking English. It was just kind of back and forth. But we agreed that we wanted our kids to speak French. Right. And because a lot of the kids, we have other people that are our generation, same kind of Barry folk. Yeah. Who both speak French, but they raise their kids and their kids don't speak it. Yeah. And we think that's they lost it. Yeah. And so the, the day that my first daughter born, the moment that she was born and we started, we just switched to speaking French and we speak French constantly. <laughs> and so both of our daughters are bilingual. So what kind of situations has that brought up? I mean, you, how did, like, uh, what are your, What's notable about that happening in your family that's it's, different? It's kind of funny because like sometimes they'll they'll <laughs> say things at the school, the girls will say things at school, people will ask, well, like although questionnaires will be like, Oh, you know, are other languages spoken in your home? Yeah. And 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 they're like, Yeah. And then sometimes <laughs> we laugh because they're like are we English language learners? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, no, yeah. not really. You, you kind of they're stronger in English than they are in French. There's some limitations to their French because they really only speak French with their parents and their grandparents yeah. and some other, like, some of their 80-year-old grandparents' friends. You know? They don't have the current idioms. Yeah. So they... The culture, the pop culture and all that. When they go to... They do summer camp. Well, they, they did. Yeah. COVID, they did summer right. camp in Quebec. And they, they pick it right up and, and, and go just fine. But, but um, it is kind of funny because the kids also like it, too, when when... <laughs> Originally, like when they were younger and getting to know different people, and we go to pick them up at sports or you go to pick them up after school, and, and we're we're just conversing in French, and other kids are looking at them like, <laughs> like what yeah, are you doing? what's going on here? Yeah, so yeah, that's uh, well, I bet, I bet you're pretty proud of that, and bet they are too. It's nice, it, it really is, and they're yeah, they're they are proud of it, and they. Did you just wanted them to get a good grade in, in French class? Is that what it was? Well, they're, they're gonna have their mother for French teacher <laughs> oh. in high school. So. <laughs> oh boy, that can be a problem. Well, I got to ask you, how did you end up here in Stowe? Well, it's um, <laughs> it's uh, I was a principal of a of a small elementary school not far from not far from Barry, mm. and that. I did that for one year. I was hoping, I was really, that was like my, one of my dream jobs was to like be a principal of this like small rural poor school. And it was just not the right, it was not what I was expecting it to be. Really? Um, for a number of reasons. Um, at the time, my girls were pretty young. Mm. So it required me to be at school a lot. The oh. school had been in shambles and they had gone through like seven principals in 13 years or something. And, and it needed a lot of TLC, which to a certain extent I liked. Mm. Um, there was a lot of angry parents. I mean, when we're talking about angry parents, we're talking about people coming in there and grabbing you, like coming into the school and grabbing you by the tie. And so were they angry at the school or angry in general? Uh, both. Okay. Both. And, and, and sometimes with good reason. Uh, yeah. Like, I didn't actually mind that too much, but... How long did that go on? How long were you there? I was only there for a year. Okay. Uh, and that's like, I... Part of me wishes that I, I should have stayed and I probably should have yeah. kept on with that. Right. Um, but there was the, one of the factors that 
was going on there was I thought that being principal, I would be more of the boss, that I would actually have some, and over a small school like that, that I would actually have some level of authority some say. <laughs> on how we were going to run the school, how we could work with the teachers, how we could work with the community. Mm-hmm. And it just happened to be that it was a fairly, it was a, it was a situation where there was a lot more uniformity across the district that was, that was desired. There was a lot more like, one yeah. having to do the same thing, kind of about getting marching orders and doing it land. And so you're kind of a, you expected to be like a conduit for the central office. Yeah. And it was not, like, yeah. there was, personally, I was new, but I was not, I was not fresh off the, um, you know, fresh off the turnip truck. I right. had some experience. <laughs> I'd been assistant principal for six years in different scenarios. And I, yeah, doctor in educational leadership and taught the university. Like, I'm not like, I, I I thought I I thought I had earned the, the right to be able to try to to lead my school um, and work with my community. And right. So I was I felt that I was constantly dealing with like day to day challenges with some with some of the community as well as also having a lot of stress and tension with with central office. Yeah. And that consumed and doing that job well consumed a lot of consumed a lot of my time. It was very stressful. And with my kids being young and it was just not the best scenario for me. Right. You wanted to spend more time with them. And so, so what I, I did was I was like, you know, I think I've always enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed teaching at the college level until I was teaching at middle school and high school level. So I thought maybe if I went back to teaching that I would, that I would sort of gain some more time with the family Things would be a little bit less stressful, and that I I've always enjoyed the classroom, so yeah. I thought that would be a good avenue. And there was a there was a few French jobs open um, open that year, and I I I only applied for this one here. Yes, to be quite honest, the the pay was something like I'd already had principal pay, and some of the other school districts would I would have I would have to I'd have to give up a lot of salary. Sure. Um, and I didn't have to give up as much to come here. So, so part of, part of coming here did have to do with the dollars. Yeah. And then you stepped in here and, um, uh, and, uh, what did you find? I mean, did, what was your, what were your impressions and who, uh, who struck you and helped you and, and all that? It was really interesting about, I noticed first coming from the schools that I had worked in is how just sort of polite and well-mannered and sort of conducive, like, kid, like or how sort of compliant kids are here. Really? Um, I, don't, I think sometimes people that have taught at Stowe for too long or haven't taught anywhere else mm-hmm. um, lose the perspective that like some of the, the little behavioral challenges or some of the, some of the little blips here and there are, are, are so much worse than a lot of other places. Yeah, I think our biggest asset is our students and families, you know. Yeah, we have like the students and their family, like kids coming in and for the for the most part, the, the, the vast majority of the time being pretty compliant, ready to kind of do whatever hmm. and wanting to do well, that I think is really it's a it's definitely an advantage here. It's it's um not necessarily like that in a lot of other places. Yeah. 
that was so that was something that struck me because we just having been assistant principal in, in different schools and then being principal and having to mm. to wear the mantle of of school, you know of dealing with the uh, with student discipline and, and family problems and and, and, and and issues between teachers and students and teachers and parents arriving here and having so many of like there's the, the quantity of that hmm. so much lower than other places. Well, you can kind of get down to learning a little bit more without without some of the confusion. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, I think we our, our success has to do with the fact that we've got pretty like you know our our kids are ready to go along for the ride. Yeah. And who did you uh, like? Who did you notice in the faculty when you who helped you out? Or I noticed in the faculty. I'm always I'm always taken by. Like some of the the old guard who have been here for a long time. Well, they're just about gone in the yeah, high school, yeah. you know. <laughs> Many of them are just here now, but I'm always struck by as somebody who's changed jobs a lot. I'm always yeah. struck by um, people who can commit themselves to a place and to or to a job and a career and a place for so long. Like that sort of dedication as um. And that's what's striking. Right. Because that's definitely not me. <laughs> so you're not going to speak specifically about that, but you, it's okay. You don't want to. But, uh, all right. <laughs> I just wondered about that. So um, do you think um, in your time, students have changed? Students in Stowe or students in general? Do you think students have changed? Well, I sort of have a different, like, two chunks. Like, I was... In the classroom as a teacher, right out of college, and then I went to administration, and then up to higher ed, and then back to administration before coming back to the classroom. So differences I see from now, from when I was first a, a classroom teacher, um, I see kids less willing to do work outside of school. Really, less, less homework. Less, like what you can ask kids to do seems to me to be less. Why? It seems that my my impression is is that other things like sports and other other extracurricular activities mm. seem to have grown in terms of the amount of value and importance that they take. I mean, you're talking about last year, though. I mean, it's kind of still happening now, right? And the sports is a lot less now at the moment, right? Yeah, well, sports is a lot less now. Yeah. Yeah. More so between between like when I first started school. Yeah. And and now. Right. You know, and I taught at I taught at a ski racing academy. It was dedicated to sports. Right. But um, but I I have kids here that tell me like, oh, I can't make the Google Meet or I can't. Yeah. I can't, um, I couldn't do my homework last night because, or this week, or I haven't been able to do this writing thing because I've had club soccer. So yeah. I have danced five minutes a week for three hours, so I'm not really going to be ready to do my seventh class. Right. That, that, to me, is just, there's, there's, there's a priority issue there with me. <laughs> do you think uh, that? Uh, parenthood has affected your teaching or vice versa has teaching affected your parenthood what would you say to that yeah um, 
Definitely. Now that my kids are are getting to be middle schoolers, like right. some of my my experience as a middle school educator, middle school and high school educator, is going to help me deal with them as right. middle schoolers. But well, how old are they now? Thirteen and, and eleven. Okay. But but having my own kids has made me try to think in terms of like communicating with, with students and with students' parents like how would how would I want those teachers to treat my kids? How like if my kid were doing this, but this was a situation, how would I want them to be treated? Right. So that that we run that we run different scenarios through that filter sometimes before I call a parent or talk with a kid. Right. But the other thing is too to the other way around that um we're not we're not like super strict parents. Right. But we hold our kids accountable and we hmm. we don't let a lot of don't let a lot of crap slide. And kind of like harkening back, I think to more like 70s or 80s parenting to a certain extent. And, <laughs> okay. and I think that I think that that actually is beneficial sometimes in, in teaching. I think that kids are allowed to fly, kids are allowed to just that that is that self-esteem and that like not ever wanting to have to hold a kid accountable and tell them something negative or critique or say, look, no. You gotta yeah. like your kids. No, you gotta make your bed. I'm sorry. If you don't make your bed, you're not gonna be able to do this. Too bad. I don't wanna make my bed. I don't care. Right. That 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 sort of similar philosophy in dealing with kids around homework or not wanting to do this or that. Um done it in our parenting and, and I also found it to be successful with, with lots of kids in the classroom. Yep. Okay. What do you think are the most important guiding principles in your view in, in doing your job? Um, one, of the, one of the things that I learned early on, my first teaching job, was at this Lyrics Academy, and we lived live there as a dorm parent. Right. Oh, yeah. We I went to a school like that, too. Kids, so it was like, yeah. there was kids all the time. Right. And, and there you're like teaching them how to do their laundry. Like they don't have to do their laundry. And then you got to like help them sure. clean their rooms. And then there's kids that are like throwing up and they're sick. And so you're like parenting them and you're like 20 years old. And that, that for me made me realize that when you have really good relationships with kids, you can teach them, you can be a little bit more casual with them. You can have a good relationship, but you can also leverage that to get down to business. So like, to me, like, you know, we're all having fun games, this is good, but now it's time to get down to business. Yeah. And so I think you can do that if you're more sort of real with the kids hmm. um, than you can if you try to set this very um, just very distinct, like, I'm the teacher, you're going to do what I say, or here are the rules that we've come up with. So for me, it's really trying to make sure that we have authentic real relationships with the students to leverage that to get get some learning. So one of the biggest joys and frustrations of your of your job. What do you, how do you measure like what's a good yeah. um one of the biggest one of the biggest joys is when 
when we get into that flow or that, you know, that it's a bit cliche and overused, but of course, when kids are have that like aha. Oh yeah. We've been we've been talking about fairy tales and French fries. We've been reading the original Charles Pavel French 17th century French versions of the fairy tales with. And mm. there's a lot more to it than than the Disney version. <laughs> and we're starting to we're just starting to read this and we're, we're talking about the symbol, the symbolism and kind of what some of the social commentary is inside there. And and they're really getting into it and they're they're excited and they're talking all about it and they're you feel that that good energy. And when kids are doing the learning and are engaged in the subject, just in spite of themselves, without even realizing that that's what they're doing, and they're in that flow, that is like what I find to be the joy of doing this work. Right. Well, thank you for talking to me. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was episode one of Charlie's Room. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope I see you after school back in my room some other night for future episodes.